Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Yeah, one of the pastors here, I am oversee our groups in discipleship as well as pastoral care. Uh, they rarely let me out to play here on Sunday mornings because uh, some will say my filter boy is not the best. So hopefully I won't say anything get me fired today. I haven't yet, so God's been good so far. All right, so we've been in a series I call Church Matters. And our goal for this series is kind of to go through scriptures, come through everything, to kind of spend some time to talk about what we do here on Sundays and why they matter what we do on Sundays here and why do they matter? Because it's incredibly easy for us to set into a rhythm of life where we only focus on the things that we're supposed to do and miss out on the why. In particular, when it comes to following God, when you miss out on the why, you miss out a ton of beautiful things behind the things that God has called us to do. So, specifically, if you've been around our church for a while, we typically have spent a ton of time talking about church is way more than just what happens here on a Sunday. The church is a group of people we belong to, and what you do the other six days of the week matters a ton. But that's to say, while that's true, we want to make sure that being part of the church is not less than what happens here on Sunday as well. And that, so that's our goal for this series, is to kind of focus on that. And today we're going to talk about financial generosity. That's right. Buckle up. We're talking about money today. Everyone's favorite topic uh, in church right after circumcision, I'm sure. <laughs> Y'all's church is growing up and didn't talk about circumcision? Is that, is, that, is that what you guys are telling me? And, and I get it. I, I really do get it why there's a lot of hesitancy when it comes to the topic of money surrounding churches. Because I've been in your position where I've sat through tons of sermons regarding money and why we should give. And at the end of the sermon, there's this massive rally to this big building campaign. And they bring out this massive thermometer with a red Sharpie. You color it in. And it, and it bothers me so much. Not, not the thermometer necessarily, but because like, they know they're going to be coloring this thing in for the next 18 months. And they somehow find seven different types of red Sharpie. So you got this like random shades of red and it just, that, that kills me. But at the same time, I, I get it. Like it's, it's, it's kind of weird. And every time a church talks about money, it's regarding to give the church more money so we can build this thing. Or some of you may have even heard, some churches kind of go even a step further, that they require their members to turn in their W-2 just to make sure they're tithed properly. So on your way out today at the basket, <laughs> please don't do that. Please don't. Um, so my, my point is, I, I get it. I, I understand the hesitancy surrounding the topic of money because we have seen it, at least personally, I have seen it modeled it very poorly so, so very often. At the same time, money is the second most discussed topic or taught topic by Jesus' ministry. So Jesus sees it as a major part of what it looks like to follow after him and the transformation of being one of his disciples. And history proves it. 
When you study Christianity through the early church, one of the clearest markers of the good news of Jesus taking root in one's life is it radically changes the way how they handle their money. In Acts 2, the starting place of Christian faith and the formation of the very first church, we see one of the first things that happened is that people started selling their possessions to give those who are in need and to give money to the apostles to support the church and meet those needs. It's something changed at the core of who they are. And that change fundamentally altered the way they think about their money. They went from being close-handed to open-handed when it comes to their money. And that makes sense because while Jesus here on earth said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we see from the early church that was indeed what has been changed in their heart because their budget has changed. And that's a one-to-one, that's a telltale sign. And historical accounts from this time period repeatedly express all at the generous, how generous Christians were. A few hundred years after Acts 2, an emperor in Rome who was really, really frustrated wrote this about his people, that they should be ashamed because these followers of Jesus took care not only their poor, but also the poor of the Romans, the Roman Empire. And everyone wants to become a Christian because they see the beauty of these followers of Jesus, their lives when it comes to their generosity and taking care of the poor. And the emperor very much hated the idea of Christianity and was frustrated more and more because people are becoming Christians, all because of how the followers of Jesus were taking care of the least of these. So we're going to spend some time this morning talking about what drove the early church to see the money in this way, where it changed the world. We'll pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is writing uh, writing to raise support for a ministry that he wants to start by serving the poor Christians in Jerusalem. There was a famine, and people there were really, really struggling. And here, Paul gives them some reasons as to why, as Christians, we're to be financially generous. So let's read the whole passage, and then we'll go back and highlight some things. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. I'll be reading out the ESV version today. Feel free to follow whichever translation you prefer. Verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the word cheerful here in Greek is the Greek word hilaros, which is where we get the word hilarious. So God is after in his people a hilarious giving, a happy giving, an eager giving. And that's the culture we honestly want to see here in our church. Happy to meet needs. Smiling as we fund ministry. Giggle in our hearts as we support good causes and meet specific needs. Let's keep going. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of his service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes 
from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and all and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks to Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So I want to give you five simple reasons highlighted uh, from this passage, five reasons for followers of Jesus why we should give. And obviously, these will not be exclusive because there are way more than five reasons we're called to generosity throughout scriptures. But but today I'm just going to focus on five. And truth be be told, I, I hope just one will stick with you. One will be enough to motivate you to start seeing the importance of giving. That's, that's a win for me. So hopefully I'll go five for five, but no promises. So if you're here today, on a, on a side note, if you're here, to, you don't know where you're at with Jesus. I, I want to I say a lot of this will not make any sense to you. So the, the only thing I hope that you will walk away today is this, that you know that There is a heavenly father right now who loves you dearly and he will give everything and he has to make you to be a part of his kingdom. That's the only thing I really want you to know today because unless you get that, everything else I'm talking about today will not make any sense. So for for those of us here who do follow after Jesus, who, who do see Jesus as our Lord and Savior, I want to give us some biblical reasons for generosity. Okay? So the first one is this. Reason number one, God provides for those who give. God provides for those who give. And I get that from verse six. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul uses an agriculture connection here, and in an agrarian society, most people would have immediately nodded in agreement because it's common sense. He says, when you plant a lot of seeds, you expect a lot of growth and fruit. If you plant few seeds, you expect very little growth fruit. And the image, and, the, and that's the image he's using. He's talking about financial giving. Now, certainly this passage and this concept has been misunderstood and mistaught several times. This idea gets hijacked in so many unhelpful ways and set people up to fail in their faith. And I want absolutely nothing to do with that this morning. I've just, I have no interest in whatsoever making you think that God is going to pour out material blessings on you, and you're going to get your dream house, your dream car, or any material or saner living that meets your list of demands. That, that's not what I'm trying to do here. Because when people think their obedience obligates God to cause their life to go a certain way, they're going to be set up to be very disillusioned. And it, and it goes against so many other things that scripture teaches. Jesus was poor and homeless. Paul, who wrote this, says in Philippians that he has plenty of time of being hungry, poor, and mistreated, and he said he can endure all things, and quote, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He quotes Tim Tebow. (laughs) He didn't, but you get it. All the apostles end up being killed or tortured for their faith in Jesus. John the Baptist, who Jesus says there's no greater before him than John the Baptist, he was beheaded for doing everything right. So scripture cannot, cannot mean that if you're obedient, God will make your life go in all the ways you prefer. It cannot mean that. With that being said, the inspired word of God also says when you give sparingly, you will reap sparingly. When you give bountifully, you will reap 
bountifully. It doesn't just mean material uh, reaping. It doesn't mean it doesn't just mean material reaping. It's an all of life blessing here. But it's also not less than material blessing necessarily. And it challenges the way we think about generosity. And it has to mean something. These are the general truths. The way that God has set things up to work and not specific promises. There are not specific promises on how you will make, uh, sorry, excuse me. The God's promises that he's making here is, is not specific on based on how much you will make and what kind of car you will drive. The deeper truth is that they point us to is, hey, when God, when you trust God and give generously, he's going to take care of you. God will make sure you have everything you need right now to glorify him each day. And that's a promise we see in scripture right in 1 Corinthians 10. This doesn't mean that if we are not, that this doesn't mean that if we're generous, God will give us everything we want. It means that when we are generous, God will give us everything we need. Those are different. And I'm sure a lot of us have heard stories of people being generous and God rewarding them, uh, that people basically give so rapidly to a point that they're, they're hurting and they don't even know how, they have nothing left to give, and then God miraculously provides for them. I'm sure some of, all of us have encountered those type of stories here, here's what I also know what happens when we hear these stories. Each of us probably have an inner voice going, yeah, I'm sure God will provide for them, but I doubt he's going to do the same for me. Because it's really difficult to believe God's provision for you theoretically. However, once you have experienced God providing for you when you have nothing left, you begin to see his promises on this are actually true. Giving, and especially giving until it forces you to change your lifestyle is sort of like a trust fall. Has everyone ever done a trust fall? You know, that cheesy thing that you had to do at the youth group or a classroom activity? That you have to close your eyes and fall backwards and trust this person that you, you barely know and hope they don't hate you and actually will catch you? I mean, it's slightly terrifying, right? And oh, there are times where sacrificial generosity will feel a lot like that, that you're just falling and you really you have no concrete evidence that God will catch you. But what Paul is saying here is, he's, Paul is actually speaking to a deep-seated anxiety issue here by saying, God's going to provide for you. He's going to catch you. He's not going to let you fall. Because the reality is our giving is not how much we have financially. Our giving is a matter of trust. Do we actually trust God will take care of us? A major heart issue at play with any lack of generosity is that money provides this tangible security. It makes us feel okay in the world. Like if something bad happens, we feel we're okay because of this money that I have. And giving it away makes us feel less secure. It's an issue of trust. And that's a tension we feel. What might happen if I give this away? And God says, whoever reaps bountifully will also sow bountifully, that he will take care of us, that he will look out for us. In order to give, we don't need more money. We actually need more trust. The amount of money we have is really not the deciding factor in our giving. It's about whether or not we trust God will take care of us. And maybe, and just maybe he takes care of us is not by giving us a standard of living we prefer, but instead filling us with the ability to be content 
with the lower standard of living that we have because we have given so much away. Maybe that's part of what his provision looks like. So that's the first reason. Here's the second one. I'll cover it quickly. Our giving brings God delight. Our giving brings God delight. And I get that in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver that we happily trust him to provide, and he likes it when we happily share. That we know that he is gracious, we know that he is good, we know that he's going to catch us. God really likes it when we believe in those things. And we give money away, and when we give money away, it brings him delight. My son, Luke, he's three and a half years old, and boy, kids are just so terribly selfish. <laughs> like, I don't need to teach him how to snatch toys away from other people or other children. Like, he just knows it on his own. It's not like he's playing with his favorite balloon at our house, and I just, like, pop out and, like, snatch his balloon and, la- and runs away laughing maniacally. He, I've never done that to him. It's a, it, it, that, that, he didn't learn that by observing the world around him. It's ingrained deeply in him. Kids are selfish. Yet, when I see him step into sharing a toy or giving away particularly the most favorite thing, th- like favorite things in life, things that he will trade me and his mother for in an instant, like Oreos or fruit gushers, when he starts sharing those and giving those away, it brings me so much joy. Because for me, in my heart, I'm going, yes, yes, that's so wonderful. You just did that. You're getting it. Seeing him being generous and selfless absolutely makes me smile. I love that he understands that he is so taken care of that he can share everything that he has, even his most precious possession. Now, let's not misunderstand that. It's not saying God's affection towards us or, or, a manip- or God's towards aff- or a that we can manipulate his affection towards us or lessen by us being generous. And just like, because just like Luke, his status as my son is not dependent. It's not on the line here. My wife and I are not like, you better share that toy if you want to stay in our house. <laughs> but when he starts to, to show fruit or beginning to, to show the fruit that I've been praying for, the, the, the soul that he will have, I cannot help but delight in that. It brings me so much joy because I know it's good for him. When you begin to see God as your heavenly father who delights in you and desires you to have a deep, meaningful relationship with him, you begin to want to do things that pleases him or avoid things that displease him. The life of a flower of Jesus can be understood as simple as that, honestly. We do not have a God who created the universe and then stepped back and just watches how things would turn out. We have a God who loves us deeply, and the Bible describes him as a good father. God says that when we understand how gracious he is towards us, our hearts are changed so that we begin to happily share what we have. He really enjoys that. He delights in that. He knows there's plenty to go around and that he will take care of us. He loves it when we know that too. He is in some way like a dad whose kids hypothetically are constantly fighting explosively and hoarding things for themselves and see them share, and God's going, yay, you're getting it. Look at you learning to share. That's beautiful, and it makes me smile. All right, third reason 
for followers of Jesus to be generous. Giving is good for us. Giving is good for us. You see this in verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, though, which through us, <clears throat> excuse me, will provide thanksgiving to God. As we give generously out of grace, cheerfully as managers, we, our, our lives are enriched in every way, and that's the promise. Our souls are formed to be the kind of souls that we're meant to have. This is an enriched life. The reality is that a lot of us believe that our joy and contentment rests on our possession and money. That we genuinely believe that this, that this direct link between our possessions and our contentment. For some of us, it's having money in the bank. That we feel secure and okay because our money is there to take care of us. For some of us, it's possessions or a certain level and quality of possessions, clothing, cars, or home furnishing that begin to feel mandatory for us to be content. For some of us, it's vacations or experiences we need to have before we can be content. For some of us, it's our retirement savings. Until we have a certain amount in our retirement portfolio, we will feel like we're not taken care of. A lot of us have this inner dialogue or inner monologue says, I cannot possibly be okay with what I currently have. And each of us are living in a time where all of us are pelted with reasons that we should be unhappy and discontent. This is what's thrown at you every day in the world which we live in. You do not have what you need for joy and contentment, but this product with this person with this car, with this situation, or this place or experience can deliver you the joy that in so far has escaped you. That's the missing link you need to have for contentment if you only have this. That is how people are selling it to you, and it is constant. And it messes up. It really messes us up. Do you know how many of your fears, how much of the complexity of your life and how much stress revolves around this idea of money. And then there's all this pressure to look a certain way and drive a certain way. Do you know how silly it is to, that you feel better about yourself by what you drive and what you wear and where you can live? And then it become, and all this becomes this pressure or that we need to provide certain things for our children that past generations will just find it silly. What you're, what you're supposed to provide for a family is ridiculous. And I hear this uh, being said all the time. I just want to give my kid every opportunity. I just want to give my kid every opportunity. Can I ask you a question? Have you been around a kid that's gotten every opportunity? <laughs> can I, can, can you be honest real qu quick? Do you like that kid? Your giggle tells me all that I need to know. <laughs> Do you know what happens to little humans who are never told no? Who are never taught to sacrifice? Who are never taught to be content with what they have? They always think they need more and more and more. Do you know how little humans were given every single opportunity turn out? they're almost always disliked and probably on the news <laughs> and not for a good reason. 
As it turns out, children need to learn to give, to share, to sacrifice, and to serve just as much as we do. Giving is not only good for you, but it's also good for your kids to learn to give and sacrifice and not get everything they want and prioritize others. The enriched life is one that understands that God has dealt generously and graciously with each of us. That God gives us meaning and identity that we cannot buy. You cannot buy the identity you have as a beloved child of God. So we handle our money differently and become managers and not owners of our things, which frees us up from a thousand shallow trivialities, stresses and anxieties that will choke life out of most. So we're not in this constant quest for more and more and more, at least not in regards to trinkets. It's all going to be a landfill or a garage sale or a Facebook marketplace sooner or later. Now this creates an real amount of freedom when you begin to grasp this. And here's why. My car does not define me. So I don't need to feel better or worse based on my vehicle that I drive. My home does not define me. Are you tracking with me on this? My home does not make me feel better or worse about myself. That's not how it works. No, I'm a manager of those things. I use those things for ministry of reconciliation. I use those things to invite people to be a part of God's kingdom. If I have a nicer one to manage, that's great. If I have a not-so-nice one to manage, that's also great. I'm going to tell you something that's going to change your life. That you, right now, have every single thing you need to be content. And I'm fully aware, I'm speaking to a room full of people in vastly different tax brackets. Some of us are in here going, what is a tax? (laughs) And please explain to me as if I'm five. That every single one of us in this room right now have everything we need to be content. There's not a certain amount of prosperity or material possessions or money in the bank that's required for you to be content. There may not be a more revolutionary statement I can make here in America. And here's the secret. The more you buy and upgrade, the more you believe that you don't have enough. The more you buy and upgrade, the more you will believe that you do not have enough. But the more you give, the more you'll realize you already have enough. If you give away what you have, you'll find contentment. If you keep what you have, you will never have enough. Never. So giving is good for you because it allows you to have an enriched life where you're freed up from needing more and more and more, where you're freed up to be content no matter what, where you are not defined by what you have, and where you're freed from the fear, anxiety, and stress of the pursuit of if I just have more. I'll be taken care of. If I just have more, I'll be taken care of. You're freed up from that pursuit. That this enriched life centers around having a heavenly father that will provide for you and your identity of being his beloved child cannot be taken away. Fourth reason for Christians to be generous. It all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. And we see this in verse 10. 
He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Here's what Paul is doing. He's breaking down what we, may, what we might call the myth of ownership. So some guy goes, oh, I baked a loaf of bread. And Paul's saying, well, where did you get the bread? Well, I used the wheat to get the bread. Oh, where did you get that wheat? I planted, I had to plant a seed. Uh, where did you get the seed? Ah, there it is. Ultimately, God is the giver. Everything comes from God. So Paul here is attacking the myth of ownership, which means you and I do not own anything. I don't own anything. The, that grace is the foundation of our generosity. And that foundation is built upon the idea that we're managers and not owners. Which means we do not know, own anything. We simply manage with the things that we have been given. This is a fundamental shift in thinking that the grace of God enlightens us to the mercy of God, and in turn, we start to see ourselves as managers. What do you have that is not his? What do you have that he has not given you? What do you have that he, has, he does not have a hand in? What do you have that he cannot rightly stand over and say, actually, I gave you that? Now, the first reaction of an average person when they hear this is, wait a minute, I, I worked to get where I am today. I paid my way through school. No one gave me a handout. I studied, I trained, I worked hard. I became good at what I do. What do you mean everything I have is his when I have worked for everything I have? And look, I'm, I'm not taking away from your hard work. I'm glad you went to school. Keep up the hard work. Don't start slacking off. What I'm saying is, if God had not given you the ability, resources, circumstances, and opportunities, your hard work wouldn't have mattered. You would not be where you are today. Like, if you were born on the side of a mountain in the Himalayas in the 13th century, you'd be poor no matter how hard you work. It does not matter how smart, how hard, and how talented you are, you will still be poor. It doesn't matter how early you wake up in the morning and how many hours you put in that day, you will live your whole life poor. So, that, so the fact that you were born here in this time with the abilities that you have, the resources that you have, the circumstances and opportunities that you have, that all of that happened to connect the ability to make money now, that's all God. Warren Buffett, who's a multi-billionaire, one of the richest men to ever live, who is also not a Christian, knows this. And he said, I'm just lucky to have been in the right place at the right time. Another place, another time, I would have not been as successful. If Warren Buffett was born a caveman, he would have not lived very long due to his scrawny little body. <laughs> no disrespect. That is true. <laughs> it just so happens he was born at a time and being smart about investing allowed him to become a billionaire. By forces outside of his control, he was able to turn raw materials into a ton of wealth. And the reality is all of us have all the material we need to be, to be content 
where we are with God, what has given us. That what we have, everything now today is a gift. Every single thing you have, every single ability you have to work and get money, to buy more things, to save for the future, all of that is given to you by God. All can be taken away very quickly and very suddenly. So in reality, you do not own anything. I can tell you a story where I've seen this lived out beautifully in my life. In 2020, at the kind of the, the, the rise of the pandemic, my family find ourselves in a situation where we do not have a home, uh, at least until our new home is built. So Callie, me, and at that point Luke was 18 months old, find ourselves in a kind of a homeless situation. And um, at, the, at this point of the pandemic, I, need to, I think this is important too, that we don't know what's going on. Like, we were told to wash our money <laughs> in the washer and dry. Do y'all remember that? That was actually the thing that we were told to do and leave our groceries out in, like, in the sun for three hours so your ice cream's nicely melted. <laughs> so, like, we're, this is like a season we're all bracing for the zombie apocalypse, you know? Like, so we actually, like, Cal and I actually end up having two families offering for us to move in with them. Like, Two families in our church potentially inviting in real-life zombies into their home is what's happening. <laughs> it's a very, very gracious thing. And it turns out both families have very similar setups for us to live with them in terms of bedrooms, bathrooms, and all that's very, very similar. And the only primary difference is that one family has a 35-pound, a really, really cute dog, and then the other family has a 120-pound Doberman. For those of you who don't know what a Doberman is, they're magnificent, beautiful creatures. One of their strengths is hunting animals. One of their weaknesses is eating tiny humans. <laughs> so, naturally, Callie and I were leaning to move in with a family that does not have a toddler murdering dog. <laughs> so, while we're talking with our life group and trying to pray and figure out what we're going to do, the family with the Doberman called me and said this. And I, and I quote, we prayed about this. I have never heard the Holy Spirit speak this clearly in my life. You do not own your house. It belongs to God. So I think your family should move in with us. And you should listen to God. <laughs> he played the God card on me. <laughs> And not going to lie, Callie and I went against our judgment and wisdom and moved in with them. And it turned out to be a very sweet season for me to experience that God does see me and my family and that he will provide for us. Because when you're in ministry, you get a lot of opportunities to provide for others. My wife and I had tons of people live with us throughout the years. But I always have this nagging voice behind me think, asking, is that going to be true of us when we are in need? Would someone actually let us move in with them? In that season, I got to witness it fully, all because the church and our family understands that everything they have belongs to God. And not only that, that family very much stepped into the role of grandparents for Luke because both of my parents have already passed away. All of this happened because they believe they're managers of their home and things and not owners. Last reason, reason number five. Because we love God and we love people. Reason number five, that as followers of Jesus, we're called to be generous and give, is because we love God 
and with our people. Verse 12, for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing to many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of this surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. In Mark 12, 30, Jesus said, you can summarize what he is all about is loving God and loving people. So why do Christians give? Because it's a way for us to express love for God and love for people. God gets the praise and glory and people get their needs met. And we love people and we want to see their needs met. It's simple as that. Poor people get taken care of. Hungry people are fed. Sick people are given care. And honestly, the church has excelled at this historically. This is why there's so many hospitals have denominational names. So even right here in Knoxville, we had the Baptist Hospital. Four Sanders Regional used to be called Four Sanders Presbyterian Hospital, St. Mary's Med Medical Center. Churches funded the beginning of, uh, beginnings of hospitals to take care and care for the needs of the people. I could give tons of examples, but in the end, the church has done well at this. This is why our church have partnered with five other nonprofits in our city and each of these nonprofits serve and take care of people in our city who have been marginalized and overlooked. And not only that, this is, why, this is constantly played out in the context of our life groups, where people are, when we have people who are hungry, we feed them. When people need codes, we provide for them. When people are struggling financially or lose their job and can't pay for their bills, we rally and find a way to pay for them. When people need counseling and can't pay for it, we pay for it. And when, we say, and when I say we, I, also, I mean you. <laughs> I mean, you pay for all those things when you give to our church. And we do whatever we need to do to take care of one another and those in our vicinity. So what does it look like for all of us to live this out? How do we continue to be formed into a people that are beautifully generous and bring glory to God? I got three specific applications for us, and these will be quick. The first one is we give to each other. We give to each other. Recall the context of our passage today. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, asking them to be generous to help with a famine that is happening in Jerusalem. We want to be able to give to one another when need arises. And to do that well, we need to plan for it. We need to budget for generosity. If we wait until a need comes up without budgeting for it, chances are we won't be able to help unless you're just in a situation where you have too much money. I would like to be your friend if that's the case. <laughs> I once was talking to someone about this concept, and they asked me, what if I saved up all this money for generosity and I don't have any opportunities to give them away? I told them, here's the secret. Once you start budgeting for generosity, you will also start seeing opportunities for generosity. Budgeting for generosity, budgeting for generosity shifts uh, generosity from feeling like a burden to feeling like an opportunity. It makes us notice opportunities to do it more often because that's how the spirit of God moves in a lot of times that we put our money toward his purposes he will start shaping our hearts to look for those opportunities and sure enough that conversation was five years ago and this person never ran out of opportunities to be generous and the people around them are blessed because of it 
Second application, we give to the church. We give to the church. Second thing is we budget for tithing. And I know churches get a bad rap for talking about tithing, which is why it's kind of safe until the end. But the, but the reality is Jesus says his primary means for advancing his kingdom is his local church. Then some of, money, some of our money should be going back and supporting the ministry of the local church. In Acts 4, it tells us that the early Christians took some of their money and laid it at the apostles' feet so that the, the apostles can distribute where they saw fit. I tithe, you tithe, we tithe because we care about the mission of God and what he is doing. Our goal as a church is to serve you and equip you to be great missionaries in our city. And real, but the reality is that that takes money to do it. So we ask you to give towards that mission. We work hard to get the most out of every dollar we spend. You're never going to see us buy lasers in this room. You're not going to see any of our staff getting rich. Rather, you're going to see us spend our time and energy getting the most out of every dollar you guys give so the mission can move forward through City Church. In fact, one of the events that we do for Best First Week Ever is giving out coffee, and people think we buy those. We don't. Those are free. The only reason we give them out is because they were given to us for free. We do everything we can to stretch every single dollar that we have. And hopefully, we made, we made it as easy as, as possible for you guys to give. The offering baskets are on your way out, and you can do it online with just a few clicks. Side note for my dear college students in here, if your income is $0, 10% of $0 is? <laughs> Nailed it. You're doing a great job in tithing. <laughs> All right, last application. We give to see justice done. We give to see justice done. As I mentioned all throughout the sermon, God's people always have been known throughout history as the ones seeing that justice is done, feeding the hungry, taking care of the poor, caring for the sick. So for us to continue to be that type of people, we need to give to things like that. You can give to see justice done on a personal level, or you can budget and give to organizations that are spearheading in those areas. If you need help to figure out what organizations you want to support, feel free to reach out to me and Eric. We can tell you about the five organizations our church is supporting. All that to say is I want to close with this quote from Robert Murray McShane, who was a Scottish minister who preached in Scotland over 150 years ago. And Ben, you guys can go ahead and come up. He preached a sermon on giving and this sermon is just so powerful because he, he takes exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9 and said, Do you know the grace of Christ? Oh, my dear friends, if you would be like Christ and you pray that you will be, become like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. And, he can, and then he proceeded on to address some major objections that people have in regards to giving. Objection, my money is my own. Thank you. <laughs> Objection, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. And then where would you be? Objection, but people, but many people in need are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have looked at you and said, 
Look at these wicked rebels. Should I lay my life down for these? No, I will give to the good angels and the deserving poor. But no, he left the 99 sheep and came after the lost. He gave his blood to the undeserving. Objection, but people who I give my money to might abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same thing with far greater truth. Christ knew thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many will take will make his blood an excuse for sinning more, and yet he gave his own blood. My dear Christians, if you want to be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely, even to the vile and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, so shall you be. It's not your money I want, it's your happiness. Remember his own word, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It is better to give than to receive and Jesus was talking about this is a posture we ought to have for our entire lives. And it's 100% true that in all of life, it is better to give than to receive. Let's pray.